Let's now turn for our scripture reading to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4, and we'll read the first 16 verses. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. But to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this, he ascended. What does it mean but that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Christian life is uh, never uprooted from Christian doctrine. As we considered last time, we've entered this uh, practical section of Paul's efficient, uh, epistle to the Ephesians where he uh, applies the doctrine of the gospel to Christian living in various ways, calls for Christ-likeness. But becoming like the Lord Jesus Christ is always grounded in his mediatorial work. And even as we enter this practical section, it's not as if we leave doctrine behind. But uh, the Apostle Paul is continually teaching and reinforcing the practical application of the gospel by grounding it again and again in the doctrine of the gospel. Yes, our text uh, is more about the unity of the church, and this is a most practical teaching, but it's not given in the form of imperatives. It's not given in the form of commands. But rather, the, the inspiration, the motivation of our text to live out this unity of the church described in the first Six verses is drawn entirely from the riches of Christ's work, Christ's provision, Christ's achievement. And that's what we need to see. That's what we need to see when it comes to the, the, the unity of the church. That's what the world fails to see. That's what the world fails to see about the religion of the cross. To unbelief, it's just so many very of of the many variations of man's quest for 
some meaning in life, man attending to the spiritual part of his nature, but they see nothing supernatural. They see nothing uh, revealed from God concerning the Christian religion. It's simply a, a human organization among many others. But we know that the Christian church is God's creation, his new creation through his beloved son. And it's the ascended Lord Jesus Christ who so richly provides for the building up, the edification of his church. And we're going to consider that provision from our text this morning under three headings. First of all, we're going to consider Christ's provision for the church with manifold gifts. Christ reveals his exaltation. He reveals his triumph by giving. And at this point, we might just observe what a great contrast there is between uh, the, the rulers and the kings of this earth and the king of kings. You recall in the Old Testament where uh, the Lord warned Israel uh, about their desire to have a king just like the other nations around them. And God warns Israel by describing the king as one who takes, who takes, who takes, who takes their fields, who takes their provisions, who takes their sons and their daughters and enlists them in his service for his purposes. But the Lord Jesus Christ, the all-exalted king, the first thing that's described in Scripture concerning that exaltation is how he gives. Ancient warriors would sometimes share the plunder and the, the booty of war. And that was sometimes by way of a victory parade by which they would return from battle in triumph. And they would enter their city and the crowds would be gathered and they'd ride through the city in their chariots, often with the captives whom they had defeated chained behind them. And they would bestow the plunders of war to the people in the midst of this celebration in which these conquering heroes were, were so glorified that as custom has it, they would even have a slave seated with him on, in the chariot, whispering into his ear, you are but a man, you are but a man, so that he would not be exalted with a sense of, of glory at his victory. Well, there seems to be some imagery similar to that in Psalm 68 as it describes God and his uh, triumph and his victory. Let God arise, let his enemies be scattered, let those who hate him flee before him. Sing to God, sing praises to his name, extol him who rides on the clouds by his name Yah and rejoice before him. He makes the clouds his chariot, we read later on in verse 17. The chariots of God are 20,000, even thousands of thousands. The Lord is among them as in Sinai in the holy place. You have ascended on high. You have led captivity captive. You have received gifts among men. This is a psalm that's quoted in Ephesians chapter 4. And it's quoted with respect to the exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ in verse 8. When he ascended on high, he led captivity captive. He had defeated Satan. He had achieved power over death. He triumphed over Satan and his cross. And now he is exalted on high. And from there he gives gifts to men. 
that alerts us to a difference between the quotation here in Ephesians and, and uh, in Psalm 68, where it says, you have ascended on high, you have received gifts among men, even from the rebellious. Yes, those who acknowledge God, they offer to him gifts of devotion and service. But that is the result of Christ's triumph and Christ's gift, which he first himself received from the Father. That's how we understand this in the light of what uh, is said in our text in connection with Acts chapter 2 in Peter's sermon at Pentecost, where it speaks of the Lord Jesus Christ who is raised up of which we are all witnesses, therefore being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, the promised reward of His faithful obedience unto death, the reward of His victory and triumph, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He poured out this which you now see and hear. Christ in his exaltation receives the promised spirit and pours out the spirit upon the church. That's the explanation of Pentecost. And the Holy Spirit is the saving gift to every believer. And furthermore, the Holy Spirit is the gifting gift. He himself is the gift. And he is the one who also gives gifts whereby the church is built up. In Christ, he is the gifting gift of Christ to each member. Christ enriches the church then. He does so with manifold, that is with a great variety of different kinds of gifts. Unity in the church does not mean sameness. There is a great uh, diversity of abilities and gifts in the church of Jesus Christ. There's a great variety of natural differences in the church that we recognize. Different abilities with respect to physical, mental, creative, a whole variety of, of natural gifts that are God-given indeed, but by the Holy Spirit they are sanctified, they are elevated and then put into the service of God's purpose in the church of Jesus Christ. God often sanctifies those God-given gifts for special use. But the thing that we must see from our text is that spiritual gifts are always conferred uh, by grace. In verse 7 it says, To each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. And then it goes on to describe gifts. And sometimes gifts are themselves described as grace. The Corinthians were ex exhorted to to... Uh, abound in the same grace that was manifested among the, the churches of Macedonia. And that grace was evident in their generosity and their liberality. That's why we speak of giving as itself a gift. He who gives, Paul says, describing spiritual gifts with liberality. It is a gift of grace to be able to give, to desire to give. All gifts are God's gifts of grace. They're given from Christ. They're given for others. We hear that in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse, verse 10 and 11. In verse 10 it says, As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another 
as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it with the ability which God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. The diversity of of gifts are given to the members of the church for the upbuilding of the church and for the glory of Christ, who is the giver. Now, Paul then, in our text, lists uh, gifts of, of special office. In verse 11, it says, And he himself, that is Christ, gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. This is not a complete listing, of course, of the spiritual gifts but it's a a listing of those gifts that are especially associated with office. And we might say special office, because it has been recognized that there is a proper distinction between the general office of all believers, which really is first, because all believers are anointed by the Holy Spirit as what? Prophets, priests, and kings. But in addition to that, there are special gifts of those specific offices that Christ has appointed in the church. And at this point, we might uh, and should recognize an, another kind of distinction, and that is a distinction between temporary offices, that is, offices or a gifts that Christ appointed for a time, and ongoing or continuing offices. And we're to see such a distinction there in verse 11. It begins with the description of what are temporary offices when it speaks of apostles. Well, you know that apostles, that word apostle is more typically used with respect to the twelve who were with Jesus, who were eyewitnesses to his sufferings, his death, his resurrection. And they were... uh called by God and sent by the Lord Jesus Christ for the foundation of the church as they were instruments of infallible and authoritative revelation concerning the gospel. Remember what Paul says in chapter 2, that the church is, is founded upon the apostles, not personally, but upon their, their teaching as those sent by Jesus. So they had a, a unique office that is temporary. There are no longer Apostles in the church today, those who receive their commission directly from Jesus, those who are eyewitnesses of his uh, death and resurrection, those who serve for the foundation of the church. That was a temporary office. And the same thing is true with respect to prophets. The church is founded upon the prophets and the apostles, or apostles and prophets. And here again, we ought not to think of the Old Testament prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, but we're to think of those New Testament prophets, those through whom the Holy Spirit revealed God's infallible will before the scriptures were completed at the very foundation of the Christian church and its establishment. In fact, historically, certainly among uh, uh, Reformed uh, churches, the, uh, the evangelist was also regarded as a temporary office. Timothy is commanded to do the work of an evangelist. Philip is called an evangelist. But we have no description of the evangelist's office. We have no qualifications spelled out. 
We have no account of the ordination of evangelists. And they have been viewed historically as, as Sinclair Ferguson describes them, as deputies of the apostles. They served a unique purpose. Timothy was not a pastor simply of a local church, but uh, he served under the apostle in a foundational role also with respect to the church. In the nature of the case, also from Ferguson, we do not expect uh, these ministries to reappear in the church today. So we have these temporary offices. And then there are pastors and teachers. And you can even tell by the way uh, this is worded that pastors and teachers are joined together. It doesn't say, and some pastors and some teachers. It says, and some pastors and teachers. Suggesting that the pastoral role, the shepherding role, is combined, or at least often combined, with the teaching role. We understand this to make reference to the ministers of the word or the elders who are shepherds over God's flock. But they are continuing offices that Christ has given uh, to the church. Now, we must acknowledge that that uh, not everything is cut and dried when it comes to defining these offices of the church. You know that in our our, our form for ordination of officers, we have a form for the ordination of missionaries. We don't have a form for the ordination of evangelists. We have a form for the ordination of missionaries. But yet our confessions recognize that there are three offices in the church. Minister of the word, elder, and deacon. And that means that the the missionary is viewed as kind of a subset of the ministry of the word. They are ministers of the word with a special task to bring the gospel where it has not yet been heard or where churches have not yet been established. But it's an ordained office of the ministry of the word. In fact, historically, it's likewise true. You look at the blue psalter hymnal and you have a reference to the ordination of ministers or professors because professors of theology historically were understood to hold that office that corresponds with this teaching office in ministry of the church. We also have professors of theology who are not uh, serving in local churches as the minister, but they're serving in seminaries. But we recognize that they are called by churches to that special work, and it's kind of a subset of that work of the ministry of the word with a special task. Now, apart from giving a, a little bit of information about reformed government and church order, I, I trust that that also illustrates that not everything about this is cut and dry, as if there are only one, there's only one way to properly define these things. And those who do define them a bit differently, well, they, uh, don't believe in the Bible. No, no, no. But one thing is clear, and that is that Christ has adequately supplied his church with what is needed for her edification and upbuilding. And that involves these ongoing offices that are word-centered to build believers up in the faith. He gives his church all that she needs as his beloved body. Secondly, Christ provides for the church for cooperative growth. You know that a comma can make a big difference in the meaning of a sentence. Look at verse 12 as it describes the, the, the purpose of these offices. It says, for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry. Comma, 
for the edifying of the body of Christ. And I would just alert you to a little detail, uh, a, disti- a difference between our translation and uh, the authorized, the old King James Version, which placed a comma after the word saints. In other words, it would read this way, for the equipping of the saints, comma, for the work of ministry, comma, for the edifying of the body of Christ. In other words, the work of ministry is also then described as the task of these offices. But you remove the comma, and it sounds as if these offices are for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry. You understand that difference? Equip the saints, because it's the saints who carry out the work of ministry. Now, again, uh, commas are not inspired, and so there are differences. This is a matter of debate in terms of how a passage like this should be understood. With the comma there, it makes clear that these other descriptions are all word-centered descriptions of the task of the official ministry of the word. And there is that special emphasis on prophesying, at least in terms of those temporary gifts, and preaching and teaching as the means by which Christ equips the church, means by which the ministry is carried out and the body is edified. But whatever the case, all should agree how crucial this is when it comes to the well-being of the church. That is the word-centered ministry. In the book of Acts, we have this reference to the Apostle Paul. When he was forced out of the synagogue, he went to the school of Tyrannus. And for two years, daily, he taught there. And the customary hours for such teaching was about five hours. And it says, and so all Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus Christ. Does that mean that all of Asia came there to this school of Tyrannus? No, it means that as a result of this ongoing teaching, this daily exposition of the truth of God, Christians were informed and built up, and they spoke the word that they had been instructed in. In fact, it's observable from history that whenever there is a quickening in the church of God, there is an appetite, an intensified appetite and interest in the teaching of God's word. That's why in Geneva, during the time of the Reformation, you could hear on an average of five, six, seven sermons a week preached by John Calvin. And many people would come to hear these sermons. Why? Because there was a kind of appetite for the teaching of God's Word. And people had a kind of spiritual stamina and interest in that. That's a characteristic of spiritual renewal, something to to think about. Certainly growth, the growth of the church is growth in the truth. Growth in the truth in contrast to error. Unity is a unity of the faith. It's a unity of knowledge. The faith, not simply my personal subjective belief, but the faith, that refers to the doctrine of the gospel. The result of this teaching ministry is that we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men. You see, this teaching protects the church from the subtle appeal of false teaching. 
It protects the church from our natural tendency to gravitate towards the latest thing, the latest fad in the Christian church, the latest movement in the Christian church. But the teaching of Scripture leads believers to love the old, old story. Not that it grows stale, because it's ever fresh, but it doesn't change. And it's rich. And it's by the truth of the gospel in its fullness that the church is built up in the faith. In any case, truth must be a common commitment. Whether the comma belongs there in verse 12 or not, we all must be truthers, if you will. Understood in a proper way. I know it's a term that it also has a certain association today. But uh, verse 15, where it says, but speaking the truth in love could literally be rendering, truthing it, truthing it in love. When Paul lists the, the ways in which Christians are to think, the first thing that he mentioned is whatsoever is true. Whatsoever is true. And from there on, whatsoever is lovely of good report. And growth in the church takes place through every member participation and cooperation in this kind of word ministry to one another. Speaking the truth in love, we may grow up in all things. Or look at verse 25 of the same chapter. Therefore, putting away lying, let each of each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. It's not enough not to lie. Yes, indeed, members of the body are damaged by lies. But they're not positively helped by not lying. They're positively helped by speaking truth. Don't worry about being profound. Don't worry about being brilliant. Don't worry about being eloquent. But say something that is true. Say what is good for necessary edification. Again, notice the contrast in verse 29. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification. The positive is always put forward. And when it comes to the edification of the church, speaking truth is given great prominence. And don't forget love, because these go together. Speaking the truth in love. Love as to your motivation. Love as to your manner. So we must ask, is it true? And we must ask, how can I say it in order to help? How can I say it in order to convince, persuade? How can I say it in order to comfort? With all the different gifts the Holy Spirit gives to the church, there are three things that really stand out in this passage. The first is that they're all from Christ. That's how verse 16 also begins. From whom? That is, from Christ, from the head. The second thing that stands out is that everyone contributes something valuable and necessary because the body of Christ is joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share, every member, and that causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself. In love. And that's the third thing. It's all from Christ. Every member has a role. 
And love is to be pervasive. You might say love is to be like the atmosphere, like the blood, like the, like the energy of this edifying work of Christ among us. How could it be otherwise if Christ is centered to this edification of the church? And that leads us thirdly and finally, Christ provides richly for the church for a glorious goal. There's a lot of reparative, a lot of restorative work that's necessary in the church because we are broken and damaged. We're dirty people and we need restoration. We need to be, we need to be equipped. And that, that, even that word equipped involves the idea of a kind of mending. It's used to describe the, the, the disciples who, uh, who were mending their nets. They were cleaning them up. They're removing the garbage. They were, uh, sewing them together, restoring them, the working condition. And that thought is involved in the equipping of the saints. And it's a long process. And it's a process that never will be perfected in this life. It's the goal of Christ's work that he might present the church to himself as a glorious bride without spot or blemish or any such thing. And Christ will achieve that work. But in the meantime, there is no absolute perfection in this life. But yet, our text describes this goal in terms that should fill us with joy and optimism. Till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And when we read that, to a perfect man, we're, we're not to think... uh only, or perhaps even first of all, of a kind of absolute perfection and a sinless perfection. No, there is a kind of perfection in the church that involves a kind of maturity. There is a perfection of Christian maturity. In fact, the very same word is is uh, used in in Second Corinthians uh, chapter fourteen, verse twenty, where. Where Paul says, brethren, do not be children in understanding, right? Again, a contrast with children. However, in malice, be babes, be naive, be ignorant, be innocent with regard to hatred, but in understanding, be perfect, says an old rendering. Be mature, says New King James, capturing the meaning of that word here. Maturity. Maturity in the knowledge of Christ. Maturity in the likeness to Christ. That's the goal. Transformation to the likeness of Christ. To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. In verse 10, we read that Christ is exalted to fill all things. And that includes the church. That he should fill the church with his presence. That he should fill the members of his body with his likeness. And you notice that it doesn't say to uh, perfect men or to perfect people. It says to a perfect man, individual. You see, the oneness of the church in God's goal shines through here also in this language. Because in all the diversity in the one body of Christ, together as a body, the fullness of his image is to be revealed. And this goal is being achieved. It is being achieved in the church as Christ is preached. As our focus, our minds, our faith is constantly directed to the Lord Jesus Christ. 
and we behold His glory as it's revealed in Scripture. And as we behold His glory, we are being transformed after His image from glory to glory, even by the Spirit of the Lord. The Lord is carrying on this work in His church as we constantly focus upon the Lord Jesus Christ. He abundantly provides his church with all she needs. There's nothing lacking in his provision, nothing lacking to give us great thankfulness and joy in sharing in his great work. Nothing lacking in Christ to move us to enthusiastic and active participation in that work. Amen.